So now the second chapter of Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hills is Desire. When Edwin C. Burns climbed down from the freight train in Orange NJ more than 30 years ago, he may have resembled a tramp, but his thoughts were those of kings. As he made his way from the railroad track to Thomas A. Edison's office, his mind was at work. He saw himself standing in Edison's presence. He heard himself asking Mr. Edison for an opportunity to carry out one consuming obsession of his life, a burning desire to become the business associates of the great inventors. Burns' desire was not a hope. It was not a wish. It was keen, pulsating desire which transcend, transcended everything else. It was definite. The desire was not new when he approached Edison. It had been Burns' dominating desire for a long time. In the beginning, when the desire first appeared in his mind, it may have been probably was only a wish, but it was no mere wish when he appeared before Edison with it. A few years later, Edwin C. Burns again stood before Edison, in the same office where he first met the inventor. This time his desire had been translated into reality. He was in business with Edison. The dominating dream of his life had become a reality. Today people who knew Burns envy him because of the break life yielded him. They see him in the days of his triumph, without taking the trouble to investigate the cause of his success. Burns succeeded because he chose a definite goal, placed all his energy, all his willpower, all his effort, everything back of that goal. He did not become the partner of Edison's the day he arrived. He was content to start in the most manian work, as long as it provided an opportunity to take even one step towards his cherished goal. Five years passed before the chance he had been seeking made its appearance. During all those years, not one ray of hope, not one promise of attainment of his desire had been held out of him. To everyone except himself, he appeared only another cock in Edison's business will. But in his own mind, he was the partner of Edison's every minute of the time from the day that he first went to work there. It is a remarkable illustration of the power of a definite desire born on his goal, because he wanted to be business associates of Mr. Edison more than he wanted anything else. He created a plan by which to attain that purpose, but he burned all bridges behind him. He stood by, he stood by his desire until it became the dominating obsession of his life, and finally a fact. When he went to Orange, he did not say to himself, I will try to induce Edison to give me a job of some sort. He said, I will see Edison and put him on the notice that I have come to go into business with him. He did not say, I will work there for a few months, and if I get no encouragement, I will quit and get a job somewhere else. He did say, I will start anywhere, I will do anything Edison tells me to do, but before I am through, I will be his associates. He did not say I will keep my eyes open for another opportunity. In case I fail to get what I want in this Edison's organization, he said, there is but one thing in the world that I am determined to have, and that is a business association with Thomas Alva Edison. I will burn all bridges behind me and seek my entire future on my ability to get what I want. He let himself no possible way of retreat. He had to win or perish. That is all there is to the Burns story success. A long while ago, a great warrior faced a situation which made it necessary for him to make a decision. 
which ensured his success on the battlefield. He was about to hand he was about to send his armies against a powerful few whose men outnumbered his own. He loaded his soldiers into boats, sailed to the enemy's country, unloaded soldiers and equipment, then gave the order to burn the ships that had carried them. Addressing his men before the first battle, he said, You see the gods going up in the smoke? That means we cannot leave those shores alive unless we win. We now have no choice. We win or we perish. And they won't. Every person who wins in an undertaking winning who every person who wins in an undertaking must be willing to burn his ships and cut all sorts of retreat. Only by so doing one can be assured of maintaining that state of mind, known as burning desire to win, essential to success. The morning after the Great Chicago Fire, a group of merchants stood on the State Street, looking at the smoking remains of what had been their stores. They went into a conference to decide if they would try to rebuild or leave Chicago and start over in a more promising sections of the country. They reached a decision, all except one, to leave Chicago. The merchant who decided to stay and rebuild pointed a finger at the remains of his store and said, Gentlemen, on that very spot I will be the world's greatest stores no matter how many times it may burn down. That was more than 50 years ago. The store was built, it stands there today, a towering monument to the power of the state of mind known as burning desire. The easy things of Marshall Field to have done would have been exactly what his fellow merchants did. When the going was hard and the future looked dismal, they pulled up and went where the going seemed easier. Mark well his difference between Marshall Field and the other merchants, because it is the same difference which distinguishes Edwin C. Burns from thousands of other young men who have worked in the Edition's organization. It is the same difference which distinguishes practically all who succeeded from those who failed. Every human being who reaches the age of misunderstanding of the purpose of money wishes for it. Wishing will not bring riches, but desire riches with a state of mind that becomes an obsession that planning definite ways and means to acquire riches and baking those plans into persistence which does not recognize failure will bring riches. The method by which desire for riches can be transmuted into its financial equivalent consists of six definite practical steps. Wage. First, fix in your mind the exact amount of money you desire. It is not sufficient merely to say, I want plenty of money. Be definite as to the amount. There is a psychological reason for definiteness which will be described in subsequent chapter. Second, determine exactly what you intend to give in the return for the money you desire. There is no such reality as something for nothing. Third, establish a definite date when you intend to possess the money you desire. Fourth, create a definite plan for carrying out your desire and begin at once, whether you are ready or not, to put this plan into action. Fifth, Write out a clear, concise statement of the amount of money you intend to acquire. Name the time limit for its acquisition. State what you intend to give in return for the money. And describe clearly the plan through which you intend to accumulate it. Sixth, read your written statement aloud twice daily and once just before retiring at night, once and assuring in the morning. As you read, see and feel and believe yourself already in the position of that money. It is important that you follow the instruction described in these six steps. 
It is especially important that you observe and follow the instruction in the sixth paragraph. You may complain that it is impossible for you to see yourself in a position of money before you actually have it. Here is a burning desire will come to your head. If you truly desire money so keenly that your desire is an obsession, you will have no difficulties in convince, convincing yourself that you will acquire it. The objects to want money and to become so determined to have it that you convince yourself you will have it. Only those who become money conscious ever accumulate great riches. Money consciousness means, the, means that the mind has become so thoroughly saturated with the desire for money and that one can see oneself already in possession of it. To the uninitiated who have not been schooled in working principle of human mind, this instruction may appear impractical. It may be helpful to all who fail to recognize the soundness of the sixth step. To know the information they convey was received from Andrew Carnegie, who began as an ordinary laborer in the steel mills, but managed, despite his humble beginning, to make this principle yield him a fortune of considerably more than $100 million. It may be further helped to know that six steps have recommended were carefully scrutinized by the late Thomas Alva Edison, who placed his stamps of approval upon them as a being. Not only the step essential for the accumulation of money, but necessary for the attainment of any definite goals. The step call for no hard work. They call for no sacrifice. They do not require no one. They do not require one to become ridiculous or credulous to apply them. Calls for no great amount of education. But the successful application of these steps does call for sufficient imagination to enable one to see and to understand that accumulation of money cannot be left to chance, good fortune, and good luck. One must realize that who have accumulated great fortune first did a certain amount of dreaming, hoping, wishing, desiring, and planning before they acquired money. You may as well know right there that you can never have riches in great quantities unless you can walk yourself into a white heat of desire for money and actually believe you will possess it. You may as well know also that every great leader from the dawn of civilization down to the present was a dreamer. Christianity is the greatest potential power in the world today because its founder was an instant dreamer who had a vision and the imagination to see realities in their mental and spiritual form before they had been transmuted into physical form. If you do not see great riches in your imagination, you will never see them in your bank balance. Never in the history of America has there been so great an opportunity for practical dreamers as now exist. The six-year year economics collapse has reduced all men substantially to the same level. A new race is about to be run. The stakes represents huge fortunes which will be accumulated within the next 10 years. The rules of the race have changed because we now live in a changed world that definitely favors the masses. Those who have built little but no opportunity to win under the conditions existing during the depressions. When fear paralyzes growth and development, he, we who are in the race of riches should be encouraged to know that this changed world in which we live in demanding new ideas, new ways of doing things, new leaders, new inventions and new method of teachings, new method of marketing, new books, new literatures, new features for the radio, new ideas for the moving pictures, 
back of all this demand for new and better things. There is one quality quality which one must possess to win, and that is definiteness, definiteness of purpose. The knowledge of what one wants and burning desire to possess it. The business depression marked the depth of one age and the birth of another. This change will require practical dreamers who can and will put their dreams into action. The practical dreamers have always been and always will be the pattern makers of civilization. We who desire to accumulate riches should remember the real readers of the world always have been men who harness and put into practical use the intangible unseen forces of unborn opportunity and have converted those forces or impulse of thought into skyscrapers, cities, factories, airplanes, automobile, and every form of convenience that makes life more pleasant. Tolerance and an open mind are practical necessity of the dreamer of today. Those who are afraid of new ideas are doomed before they start. Never has there been a time more favorable to pioneers than the present. True, there is no wild and woolly west to be conquered, as in the days of covert wagon, but there is a vast business, financial and industrial world to be remolded and redirected along new and better lines. In planning to acquire your share of the riches, let no one influence you to scorn the dreamer. To win the big stakes in the change world, you must catch the spirit of the great pioneers of the past whose dream has given to civilization all that is of value, the spirit which serves all the lifeblood of our own country, your opportunity and mind to develop and market our talents. Let us not forget Columbus' dream of an unknown world, stake his life on the existence of such a world and discovered it. Copernicus, the great astronomer, astronomer dreamed of multiplicity of worlds and revealed them. No one denounced him as impractical after he had triumphed. Instead, the world worship at his shrine, thus proving once more than that. Success requires no apology. Failure permits no alibis. If the things you wish to do is right and you believe in it, you go ahead and do it. Put your dream across, across and never mind what they say. If you meet with temporary defeat for day, perhaps do not know that every failure brings with it the seed of equivalent success. Henry Ford, poor and uneducated, dream of horseless carriage, went to work with what tools he possessed, without waiting for opportunity to favor him, and now evidence of his dream bells the entire art. He had put more wheels into operation than any man who ever delivered, because he was no afraid of his back his dreamer. Thomas Edison dreamed of lamb that could be operated by electricity, began where he stood to put his dream into action. And despite more, more than 10,000 failures, he stood by that dream until he made it a physical reality. Practical dreamers do not quiet. Wayland dreamed of a chain of cigar stores, transformed his dreams into action, and now the United Cigar Store occupies the best corners in America. Lincoln dreamed of freedom for the black slaves, put his dreams into action, and barely missed living to see a united North and South translated his dream into reality. The Wright brothers dream of machine that could fly through the air. No one may see evidence all over the world that dream soundly. Marconi dreamed of a system for harnessing the intangible forces of ether. Evidence that he did not dream in vain may be found in every wireless and radio in the world. 
Moreover, Marconi's dream boat, the humblest cabin, and the most stately humor house side by side. It made the people of every nation of earth backdoor neighbors. It gave the President of the United States a medium by which he may talk to all people of America at one time. And on short notice, it may interest you to know that Marconi's friend had him taken into custody and examined in psychopathic hospital which he announced he had discovered a principle through which he could send message through air without the aids of wire or direct physically means of communication. The dreamers of today fare better. The world has become accustomed to new discovery. Nay, it has shown a willingness to remind willingness to reward the dreamer who gives the world a new idea. The greatest achievement was at first and for the time but a dreamer. The oak sleep in his account. The bird waits in the egg and the highest vision of the soul, a waking angel, stares dreams are the settlings of reality. Awake, arise and assert yourself, you dreamers of the world. Your star is now in the ascendancy. The world of desperation brought the opportunity you have been waiting for. It taught people humility, tolerance and open-mindedness. The world is filled with the abundance of opportunity which the dreamers of the past never know. A burning desire to be and to do is the tar- starting point from which the dreamer must take off. Dreams are not born of indifference, laziness or lack of ambitions. The world no longer scoffs at the dreamer nor calls him impractically. If you think it does, take a trip to Tennessee and witness that dreamer president has done in the way of harnessing and using the great water power of America. A score of years ago, such a dreams would have seem like madness. You have been a disappointment. disappointed. You have undergone defeat during the depression. You have felt that great heart within you crushed until it bled. Take courage for this experience have tempered the spiritual metal of which you are made. They are assets of incomparable value. Remember to that all who succeeded in life get off to a bad start and pass through many heartbreaking struggles before they arrive. The turning point in the lives of those who succeed usually come at the point of some crisis through which they are introduced to their lives, other selves. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which is among the finest of all English literature, after he had been confined in a prison and sorely punished because of his views on the subjects of the religion. O. Henry discovered the genius which slept within his brain after he had met with his great misfortune and was confined in a prison cell in Columbus, Ohio. Being forced through misfortunate to become acquaintance with his other self and use his imagination, he discovered himself to be a great author instead of miserably criminal and outcast. Strange and varied are the ways of life, and strangers still are the best way of infinite intelligence, through which men are sometimes forced to undergo all sorts of punishment before co- discovering their own brains and their own capacity to create useful ideas through imagination. Edison, the world's greatest inventors and scientists, was a tramp, telegraph operator. He failed innumerable times before he had driven finally to the discovery of genius which lay within his brain. Charles Dickens began by parceling labels on black blacking pots. The tragedy of his first love penetrated the depths of his soul and converted him into one of the whole truly great authors. That tragedy produced first David Copperfield, then a succession of others' work that made this a richer and better world for all who read his book. 
Disappointment over love affairs generally has the effect of driving men to drink and women to ruin. And this, because most people never learned the art of transmuting their strongest emotions into dreams of a constructive nature. Helen Keller became deaf, dumb, and blind shortly after the birth. Despite her greatest misfortune, she was written her name indelibly in the pages of history of the grid. Her entire life was served as a evidence that no one ever is defeated until defeat has been accepted as a reality. Robert Bonds was an illiterate country lad. He was cursed by poverty and grew up to be a drunkard in the bargain. The wool was made better for his having lived because he clothed beautiful plot in poetry and hereby plucked a throne and planted a rose in his place. Booker T. Washington was born in slavery, handicapped by race and color, because he was tolerant, had an open mind all times on all subjects, and was a dreamer. He left his impressions of good on an entire race. Beethoven was deaf, Milton was blind, but their names will still last as long as time endures, because they dreamed and translated their dreams into organized thought. Before passing to next chapter, kindle anew in your mind the fire of hope, faith, courage, and tolerance. If you have these states of mind and a working knowledge of the principle, describe all else, what you need will come to you. You are ready for it. Let Emerson state the thought in this word. Every proverb, every book, every byword that belongs to day for aid and comfort shall surely come home through open or winding passage. Every friend whom not thy fantasy will, but the great and tender soul in thy cravat, shall lock thee in the embrace. There is a difference between wishing for a thing and being ready to receive it. No one is ready for a thing until he, be he believes he can acquire it. The state of mind must believe, not mere hopes or wish. Open-mindedness is essential for belief. Close minds to do not inspire faith, courage, and faith. Remember. No more efforts is required to aim high in life, to demand abundance and prosperity, than is required to accept misery and poverty. A great poet has correctly stated this universal truth through this line. I bargain with life for a penny, and life would pay no more. However, I begged that evening, when I counted my scanty score. For life is a just employer. He gives you what you ask, but once you have seized the wages, but why you must bear the tax? I work for a menial's hire, only to learn dismay that any wage I ask for life, life would have willingly paid. Desire outwits mother nature. As a fitting climax to this chapter, I wish to introduce one of the most unusual persons that I have ever known. The first I first saw him twenty-four years ago. A few minutes after he was born, he came into the world without any physical signs of ears and the doctor admitted when pressed for an op opinion that the child might be deaf and mute for life. I challenged the doctor's opinion. I had the right to do so. I was the child's father. I too reached a decision and re-entered an op opinion, but I expressed the opinion silently in the secrecy of my own heart. I decided that my son would hear and speak. Nature could send me a child without ears, but nature could not induce me to accept the reality of the affliction. In my own mind, I knew that my sons would hear and speak. How? I was sure there must be a way, and I knew I would find it. I thought of the words of the immortal Emerson. 
The whole course of things goes to teach us faith. We need only obey. There is a guidance for each of us, and by loving, listening, we shall hear the right word, the right word, desire. More than anything else, the desire that my son should not be a deaf mute. From that desire, I never receded, nor for a second. Many years previously, I've written our only limitations are those we set up in our minds. For the first time, I wondered if that statement were true. Lying on the bed in front of me was a newly born child without the natural equipment of hearing. Even though he might hear and speak, he was obviously disfigured for life. Surely this was a limitation which that child had not set up his own mind. What could I do about? Somehow I could find a way to transplant into child's mind by my own burning desire for ways and means of conveying sounds to his brain without the eyes of ears. As soon as the child was old enough to cooperate, I would fill his mind so completely with a burning desire to hear that nature would, by method of our own, translate it into a physical reality. All I thinking took place in my own mind, but I spoke it to no one. Every day I renewed the place I had made to myself, not to accept a deaf mute for a son. As he grew older and began to take notice of things around him, we observed that he had a slight degree of hearing. When he reached the age where children, when children usually begin talking, he made no attempt to speak, but we could tell him by his accent that he could hear certain sounds slightly. This was all I wanted to know. I was convinced that he could hear, even slightly. He could might he might develop still hearing, still greater hearing capacity. Then something happened which gave me hope. It came from an entirely unexpected source. We bought a victrola. When the child heard the music for the first time, he went with ecstasy and promptly appropriated the machine. He soon showed a preference for certain records among them. It's a long way to Tepere. On one occasion, he played that piece over and over for almost two hours, standing in front of Victoria with his teeth clamped on the edges of the cast. The significance of his self-formed habits of his did not become clear to us until years afterward, for we had never heard of the principle of bone conduction of sound at that time. Shortly after he appropriated the victrola, I discovered that he would never he would hear, hear me quietly clear. When I spoke with my lips touching his mastoid bone or at the base of the brain, these discoveries placed in my position that necessary media by which I began to translate it into reality my burning desire to help my son develop hearing and speech. By that time, he was making steps at speaking certain words. The outlook was far more encouraging, but desire lacked by faith knows no such word as impossible. Having determined that he could hear the sound of my voice plainly, I began immediately to transfer to his mind the desire to hear and speak. I soon discovered that the child enjoyed bedtime stories, so I went to work creating stories designed to develop in his self-reliance, imagination, and keen desire to hear and to be normal. There was one story in particular which I emphasized by giving it some new and dramatic coloring each time it was told. It was designed to plan in his mind the thoughts that his affliction was not a liability, but an asset of great value. Despite the fact that all the philosophy I have examined clearly indicated that every adversity brings with it a seed of an equivalent advantage, I must confess that I had not the slightest idea how this affliction could 
never become an asset. However, I continued my practice of wrapping that philosophy in bedtime stories, hoping the time would come when he would find some plans by which his handicap could be met to severe some useful purpose. Reason told me plainly that there was no adequate compensation for the lack of ears and natural hearing equipment deserts backed by fate. Pushed reason aside and inspired me to carry on. As I realized, or as I analyzed the experience in Ristropek, I can see now that my son's faith in me and had much to do with the astounding result. He did not question anything I told him. I sold him the ideas that he had a distinct advantage over his older brother and that this advantage would reflect itself in many ways. For example, the teachers in school would observe that he had no ears and because of this they would show him special attention and treat him with extraordinary kindness. They always did. His mother showed to that. By visiting the teachers and arranging with them to give the child the extra attention necessary, I sold him the idea too. And that when he became old enough to sell newspaper, his older brother had already become a newspaper merchant. He would have a big advantage over his brother for the reason that people would pay him extra money for his fares because they could see that he was bright, industrious boy despite the fact he had no ears. We could notice that gradually the child's hearing was improving. Moreover, he had not the slightest tendency to be self-conscious. Because of his affliction, when he was about seven, he saw the first evidence that our method of servicing in his mind was bearing fools. For several months, he begged for the privilege of selling business, selling newspapers, but his mother would not give her consent. She was afraid that his deafness made it unsafe for him to go on a secret alone, on a street alone. Finally, he took the matters in his own. One afternoon, when he was Left at home with the servants, he climbed through the kitchen's window, signed to the ground and set out on his own. He borrowed six cents in capital from the neighborhood shoemaker, invested it in paper, sold out, reinvested and kept repeating until late in the evening after balancing his account and paying back the six cents he had borrowed from his banker. He had a net profit of 42 cents. When he got home that night, we found him bed asleep with the money tightly clenched in his hand. His mother opened his hand, removed the coins and cried, of all things. Crying over his phone, crying over her son's first victory seemed so inappropriate. My reaction was the reverse. I laughed heartily, for I knew that my endeavor to plan in old child's mind an attitude of faith in himself had been successful. His mother saw in his first business venture a little deaf boy who could go out in the streets and risk his life to earn money. I saw a brave, ambitious, self-reliant little businessman whose stock in himself had been increased a hundred percent because he had gone into business on his own initiative and had won. The transaction pleased me because I knew that he had given evidence of traits of resourcefulness that would go with him all through his life. Later, events proved this to be true. When his older brother wanted something, he would lie down on the floor, kick his feet in his hair, cry for it and get it. When the deaf little boy wanted something, he would plant a way to earn the money, then buy it for himself. He still follows that plan. Truly, my own son has taught me that handicaps can be converted into stepping stones on which they climb. And Truly, my own son has taught me that handicaps can be converted into stepping stones on which one may climb towards 
some worthy goals unless they are expected, accepted as obstacles and used as alibis. My little deaf boy went through the grades, high school and college without being able to hear his teacher, except when they shouted loudly at close range, he did not go to the school for the deaf. We would not permit him to learn the science of language. We were determined that we should leave him a normal life and associates with normal children and we stood by that decision, although it caused us many heated debates with school officials. While he was in his high school, he tried an electrical hearing aid, but it was no value to him. Do we believe to a condition that was disclosed when the child was six by Dr. J. Gordon Wilson of Chicago, when he operated on one side of the boy's head and discovered that there was no sign of natural hearing equipment, hearing equipment.